What is up, Internet? Welcome to the Randy King Live with podcast. This week, I talk with my good friend, Sterling Scott, about all of the craziness that's happening in the world revolving around the death of George Floyd. So Sterling was one of the speakers at a digital rally here in Edmonton, and his speech was so well done that I had to have another conversation with Sterling about all the different issues that are happening in the world right now. So in this episode, we talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Mostly we talk with the death of George Floyd and the repercussions that have happened in the world and how Sterling is very hopeful that a change is coming because of all the things that are actually happening in the world right now going on past that. He gives us a little insight into his own experience with the police and also some of his background challenging his own fears about homophobia and racism as well. We discuss why we think this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Why was it the death of George Floyd that made all this stuff happen and not the death of Breonna Taylor or the death of that child in the backyard getting shot by the police because he was holding a replica weapon? Why was this the reason that people decided to make a huge difference? We talked about his speech and how he prepared for his speech and what fueled that speech in the digital rally, which I will be linking here in the show notes. So check below to see that entire presentation, but particularly Sterling's presentation, it was phenomenal. And last but not least, I actually share a story that I don't think I've shared on the air before about the death of my good friend, Jesse Lassard, and how he, because of his background, because he was one of the First Nations, a, a member of the Dene tribe here in Canada, how the police kind of let his murder slip under the rug. So if you want to hear all of that, stay tuned for this very heavy, but very important episode of Randy King Live with So this week we have my good friend Sterling Scott on the show. Sterling has done every single podcast I've ever done. I think he's been on all three now because you did the debate. You did Talking to Savages. You did the WTF. And this is the only one you haven't done. So you've done all four of the shows that I've had. I brought Sterling on because Sterling was one of the presenters at the situation that's happening with Black Lives Matter and equality for all and the, the whole Floyd situation, right? So there was a crazy, if you're not paying attention, if you don't know what I'm talking about, probably listen to the rest of this podcast, go like get yourself figured out and then come on back. But there's some stuff happening to the south of us that involved, that's been happening for a very long time and nobody really wanted to pay attention to it. And finally, people had enough is what I, is, is my take on this, right? And the really important thing was everybody said, the people that said this came out of nowhere were the same people that said the way that people were protesting before this protest weren't protesting correctly. So this, there's been an issue with this for a while. Sterling did an amazing speech on one of the rallies that myself, my daughter, my girlfriend went to. And I had to talk about this because obviously this affects him personally so much that if you haven't listened to it already, I've uploaded the bonus podcast from Talking to Savages from about two years ago where Sterling had a problem with Money Mart. So number one, I want to tell all you motherfuckers who say that I'm virtue signaling right now, I've been fucking talking about this for way longer than the protest, so shut the fuck up. I'm not one of those people that just jumped on board for advertising. We've been doing this for a bit but yeah so sterling uh sterling's in the show sterling first off why don't you tell the listeners who you are and then we'll get into the the heavy topic hey how's it going everybody i am the triple crown interviewer sterling scott stand-up comedian out of edmonton alberta father of three and boyfriend to none so <laughs> all right sterling so let's just get right into this i'm sure you're not sick of talking about this because this is your everyday but Take me through like right from the beginning. So, right, the murder happens. Okay, take me right from there. What? So you see this happen. 
So the first thought I had was, again, because I had just the week before posted about Ahmad Arbery, who was gunned down while going for a jog in his own neighborhood on a Sunday. And this for me was, like I said, it just was like, God damn, again? But what happened with the world was different. Also that in that month, we had Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and another individual. Like I said, there's so many that this happens on a regular basis. What changed with this one is I bring it back to like the Rosa Parks. Like George Floyd's murder will always be known as the one that sparked the change. But there was plenty of protests and stuff for people who had been murdered by the police unjustly before. But with the Rosa Parks one, it just was just like with Rosa Parks where lots of people got arrested for protesting and sitting on the bus who wouldn't sit in the back. But the Rosa Parks story is the one that kind of popped off and set off the rally and the trend that they all followed behind. Same thing with George Floyd's murder. This one hurt me just like all the other ones hurt me. It's just that this is the one that the world reacted to. In fact, a lot of times when I post, I try to remind people, hey, don't forget, there's a lot of other police officers. Breonna Taylor was sleeping in her own home, in her own home, and cops burst in and shot her and killed her in her bed sleeping, and those cops are all walking free. So it's like there's so many cases like that, that to the point where when people were trying to name all the names that were that had protests for they couldn't remember after 27 names you know it started to get wild could you imagine it's tw so 27 times and we're talking about from the perspective of the ones that made the news so you have you know tamir rice was the one that i thought should have been when this should have happened tamir rice was 12 years old in his yard at his house with a toy gun and the cop came out the car popped him twice i don't care what you tell me when you see a 12 year old child a 12 year old child and your first reaction is to draw and shoot then there's obviously something more than color and it's not it's that's a deep hatred that you have to have for a color of people and i thought because i know if my 12 year old was playing in the yard with a toy gun and i heard two gunshots and a police officer took him down i'm burning the police station down i'm burning down there's, there's no talking for me. All you would find on the news is the rampage of murders that I would have done. And I don't, I don't care. As a father, if, another, if I saw another parent, I don't care what color they are. If they saw their child get murdered and they went on a rampage, I'd be like, yeah, that's what happens. Because no parent should ever have to bury their child. And I thought the crazy uh, protest that we're looking at now would have started back then. But so since that happened, and the world erupted, and it looked like, for once, that the world was actually listening. And I think my theory is that there's no football, there's no basketball, there's no baseball, there's no hockey, there's no going out. So for once, people were confined to being forcefully having to listen and forcefully having to watch. Because for all of these people who are now jumping on the bandwagon, not necessarily that it's a bad thing, but like now jumping in, did you not watch the other videos where they killed us? Like, there's plenty of videos. There's video of a guy talking to a police officer on Facebook Live, and they shot him. He's in his car, pulled over, and he goes, I'm going to get my driver's license, and they shot him for that. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I guess that maybe because there was less distractions in the world because of COVID-19, that we were forced to actually watch, because this video is not even as brutal as the ones that had happened before, and they were way worse. 
in fact. They are the ones, the very first I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. They beat that guy up standing outside of a corner store by himself. You know what I'm saying? And so this one, though, for some reason, my belief is that everybody was forced to pay attention, sparked an outrage that was unlike before because all the other protests was always black people. When I went to the one in Edmonton, I was blown away to find out that black people were the minority at the Black Lives Matter rally. And that was, I was shocked. My jaw dropped. I had never thought that this would be ever happen. And then even walking down the street and people were honking their horns and then shouting to me, Black Lives Matter. I have never been walking down the street as a black person in my life and have white people honk their horns and cheer for me, you know what I'm saying? For no reason at all. It was blowing me away. So the outrage was always the same. Mm -hmm. it, the results that we're seeing were unexpected. Every black person had texted another black person like, I think this might change. Like, I think, I think we might actually do something. But there is still the doubt and fear in me because this has caused awareness, but it hasn't caused change. Now, change is happening in some places because in Minneapolis, where uh, George Floyd was killed, they decided to dismantle the police station and invest more into the community policing themselves, which is an amazing thing because what it does is it gives a perspective for the community to see how hard it was to be a police officer but also it lets police officers see what it is to be a human to another human. You know what I'm saying? I'm not anti-police. It's just that it's become too acceptable for a police officer to, to hurt a black person or an indigenous person and get away with it. We are taught as black people that to order to survive, not get out of, to survive a police encounter is to be submissive, to literally go, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, you know what I'm saying? Almost as if you are prostrating in and acting like a slave. They really tell you that. I literally, in Edmonton, that's why when uh, you said we had issues in the South, no, we got issues in the world. It is acceptable in the world to hate Black people. In, in Edmonton, I have had police officers pull guns on me at least six times. And I've had them where, by the way, for anybody listening, I don't have a criminal record. So they're just pulling, and I don't have any weapons when I go on the street or anything. So me having a gun pulled on me six times, do you want to know what they're for? Coming out of my car and walking in a parking lot, stepping out of my vehicle, walking down the street. Most of them are just me walking. I've been beaten up by police officers. One of the laws in Edmonton is that if you are assaulted, attacked, or robbed, anything by the police, Guess who you have to report that to? The police. And that is horrible because I was had guns pulled on me and was robbed by police officers. They pulled me over because they said that my license plate appeared to be bent. My license plate was not bent. So that was the reason because if they pull you over and they don't have a reason, then it's harassment. So what they do is they'll pull you over and make anything up. I've actually been pulled over and they said, we thought the owner of the vehicle by pulling it up was a woman and we saw a man driving so he pulled you over like that's their favorite excuse oh you look we thought it was a woman that owned this car i've been pulled over for all now i know that that's a lie and i know that that's not real but you have to just accept it and humble yourself because if you don't the police are making up rules 
start making up laws and will arrest you on anything because it doesn't have to stick. It just has to ruin your day. I've been in jail and holding cells for 24 to 48 hours on charges that never ever went to court. So you could go to jail for two days and come out and they'd be like, I'm sorry, we were wrong. You know what I'm saying? I've had a shotgun put to my head and was uh, handcuffed on the floor, dragged to the side of the street while two cops sat over me with shotguns in Edmonton while four other cop cars searched the vehicle with guns and they came back and said, the reason why we did that was because we thought you were doing 50 and a 60. You can go home now. So you see, the outrage was always there. But this is the first time we've ever seen people of other colors coming together on our behalf. And so that is what's blowing me away about this one. So sorry about that long rant. The, the show is literally about you talking. That's fine. That's what we want. To jump into it, I... Th- I, people knew, I don't know if people, people could deny it was a problem. Like even with the horrific killing of that 12 year old in his, was his family's yard. I could see it's not right, but I could see a debate being like, well, they thought he had a weapon. All weapons are dangerous. Shot him. I think while I didn't even consider the no other distractions uh, concept, which makes so much sense. All of the times that, that so of all of the litany of times that uh, people of color were killed. I could see the squeaky excuse, right? Like, oh, this person had this, this person had that. With this George Floyd situation, I, I think eight minutes of being on somebody's neck, there's, there's, there was no place for excuses to be. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I think that's what, that's what shook the people that were maybe like, I get it's bad, but maybe it's not that bad to like, holy shit, this is bad. Why would he kneel on his neck for eight minutes? He had handcuffs on the whole time. And I'm the same way as you are. I'm not anti-police. I train, I used to train police officers. Nobody's hiring me after my Facebook post lately. But I used to train police officers back before I went purely civilian. The tactic that was used on, uh, on Mr. Floyd was not done correctly, but that doesn't matter. And it was the the general rule when we're training it, because I'm certified to teach that technique in the entire country we live in, is the second the handcuffs are on, the lock stops, right? Because once you control the person, why would you keep your, like, why would you need to keep putting that kind of pressure on somebody when their hands are behind their back and cuffed, right? And the, the thing that blew me away was not only that it happened, but the arrogance of he was being filmed and he did not give a fuck. He thought he could literally get away with kneeling on somebody's neck for eight minutes. That's so fucking insane to me, but I'm a white guy with some privilege and that would never happen to, I just wouldn't. And anybody that says it would, yes, I'm not saying white people have been killed by the police. And all the white people said, well, white people are killed by the police. That still fucking means we have a police problem, idiots. It doesn't, like, what is your dad? I don't understand how that's a defense. Anyway, so I'm going to calm the fuck down because I'm also enraged, but nowhere near, I'm sure as you are. But <laughs> you saw, you spoke at one of these rallies and your speech was awesome. And I can't, uh, could you send me the link? I can't seem to find it because my daughter wants to watch it again. And I want to attach to the show. If you can find it, that'd be great. I or just it, like yeah. send me in the right direction. That was the first time I've, because you're a stand-up comedian, you have a very good stage presence, and you've all, you're very well-spoken, and I love it, and that's why we get along so well, we're both like presenters, and we can have like presenter problems, <laughs> and so it was interesting for me to see, and I said this before the show, but it bears repeating, the juxtaposition of your stage presence as a comedian to your passion about this, this issue, and the amount of people who have shared, I've heard these stories over and over again from uh, First Nations, people, all people of color, right, like the people that I know, the people that I work with, but so many more people are sharing their stories, right? And I think it's because there's, there's people like you who are 
well-spoken, like, and I don't mean this, like, that comes across wrong. You know what I mean? You're, yeah, you're, I, you're a good presenter in general. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, I know what you mean. I know you're what you a mean. strong presenter. And so you can get your point across better than most people can when they're trying to express. Now, that speech, I know you only had three days to get that ready. Can you take me through the process of why you chose what you chose to talk about? Because what I loved about it was you didn't, you looked at the issue, you called every fucking buddy out. You were like, look, please, you're bad too. But hey, guess what? We're bad to each other. And also, guess what? This culture isn't like us either. And also, guess what? Right? Like you really hit everybody on it. And why did you decide to go that route? And what brought you there? You're not going to believe this. I never wrote anything. Oh, my, are you serious? I didn't prepare a speech. I didn't have anything written down. I actually called Jesse a day before and I asked him, I said, not a, I'd say about a day and a half before. And I messaged him uh, when he announced that he was going to have speakers is the day I messaged him. And I was like, can you call me, please? I would like to talk. And he called me and I just told him why I wanted to speak on stage. And I go, I'll even write things up for you. He goes, you don't need to write nothing what you just said to me on the phone, I want you to just speak your truth. So I didn't write anything down. I didn't prepare a speech. What I said was just pain. What you saw was honesty and pain, frustration, the reality of what it is to be hated on all fronts, the, the confusion of how you are a person of color being facing prejudice from another person of color. And it's like, why, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Like, do you feel good about what you're doing? Like, you know that the people that are racist towards me don't like you either. You know what I mean? Like, why are you doing this? Because the George Floyd thing really hurt me because of the fact that George Floyd died exactly for the same reason that I was in, in trouble. He was at a cash checking place and they called the cops on him saying that he may have had a fake $20 bill. That's exactly what happened to me. I was called the cops on because they said that I had a fake check and I never had no fake check, but I was fortunate enough that I left the scene when they were calling the cops because I'm not waiting around for police officers to come and I know what happened. They're gonna come, I'm in a place of business, they're going to arrest me and then just take me out like I'm the problem. And it's like, well, the frustrating thing was, I presented the video. I showed you guys. This guy refused to cash my check, wouldn't tell me why he didn't cash my check. By the way, never told me why he was going to cash my check. And then throws my check back at me, calls the police on me. That's not the first time. That was actually the fourth recorded account. And that's why I recorded that one. Now, fortunately, I survived that. George Floyd didn't. And that's why that one touched me and hurt me so much. So when I hit that stage, I just let out the truth that I did say openly, and I'll admit this, and I'll never hold, I'll never be silent about it, that I find it absolutely disgusting that the accepted racism towards First Nations people, it burns my heart to the very core because as a black person, I know I'm, I'm only one up from First Nations person on the hated ladder, you know, because some white people will accept a black person to hang out with, but I don't meet a lot of white people that like natives. In fact, I, let's not even say white people. I'll say everybody, everybody. And I would sit there and it hurt me because I studied First Nations people in school, never met them until I was 23. 
23 when I came to Edmonton is when I met my first First Nation person. And it hurt me because I knew of their history. And I thought that reserves were kind of like reparation. I didn't know that reserves were set up encampments to impoverish them, rape them, beat them, kill them, and do it out of the sight of society. The fact that these people went to school that are the same age as me that were raped, beaten, and buried on their own lawns in schools, you know what I'm saying? And that nobody cares. That was an actual news story. And they're like, yeah, it was on national news, but there was no protest. There was no rally. So when I was on stage and I said that, I said that nobody has been more disrespected in Canada than the First Nations people. I meant that from the bottom of my heart. What I said about white people, if you want to help, not just white people, I said all people of color because all people of color hate black people too. I have faced racism from Indian people, East Indian people. In fact, it was an East Indian person who called the cops on me at the Money Mart incident. It was an East Indian guy that called the cops on George Floyd. I faced a lot of racism from a lot of Filipino people who are straight from the Philippines. They tend to hate me a lot for some reason. And I faced a lot of racism from, you know, Lebanese, Middle Eastern people as well. I faced a lot of racism from Chinese and Vietnamese, Korean. Uh, the list goes on. And it, it's a horrible lifestyle of microaggressions that allow when something big happens, that those same people will go, ah, they probably deserved it. You know what I mean? Like how you said, there's that little inkling. They look for that little inkling and they hang on to that rather than look at the large picture of when have black people and police ever been good? Name one time that you don't know the joke of, ah, if you're in a car and you're black, you're gonna get pulled over. Or you can't have four black guys in a the car, they're gonna pull you over. Or when you get pulled, you're, you're driving while black. You don't act like these things never occur. Like these things were always around. My anger towards that came out. And then my anger towards the community, the black community came out too, because I saw a lot of people trying to have rallies and protests. And I saw people trying to sow seeds of discontent in each other's rallies so that they could make theirs the more popular one. And I who was speaking at one of them said, I'm going to go to all of them. Like this is anybody who is out there trying to say something positive and for change, I'm there to support it. And then there was other people who were like, I don't want to support this person because of this reason. And I don't want to support that person because of this reason. I'm like, you're making this about yourself. I don't care who this is about stop that crabs in a bucket mentality. Let's for once work together towards an objective that's going to help all of us. You know what I'm saying? And then I went at the whole, because I know like, I, I'm just thinking in, in, in terms of advance when I was speaking and I was thinking, what are things that people would say to try to counteract this? Like the people, when it said like white people, how do you help? You help by starting at home, change the narrative at home. Let me explain why that's so important. When you change the narrative at home, right? First of all, you're gonna find out how many people around you are racist. And that's an, it's a staggeringly large number. Then you have to realize that those people who you didn't know were racist, they have jobs. And the jobs that they have every day, a lot of them have to encounter and deal with black people. And they are prejud they do predatory practices towards us and they hide it under the term policy. And this is where you'll see a lot of things where you'll see 
a, a, a white person will be like, what are you talking about? And then I'll be like, that's their policy. See, policy is something that they hide behind to be prejudiced. And the reason why I say that is because if it's your policy, it means that that is something that you do every single time. If your policy is not practiced with everything, then your policy is not policy. Your policy is prejudice because then you're only enacting these laws in order to refute somebody of a particular race, color, skin, uh, religion, whatever. Therefore, it's not a true policy. I would, the Money Mart problem was what upset me because I watched her cash seven white guys check, right? No questions asked, nothing. They came in, cash check, go. They got their money immediately. I sat there for an hour and then they're going to come out and tell me, can you provide me three more checks from this exact person? And can you get them to call me directly? And can you provide three pieces of government ID? First thing I said was, who carries around three pieces of government ID and can you name them, all right? The second thing I said was, how come I didn't see you ask for three checks, three pieces of ID and everything from everybody else? And she said boldly, it is my decision on who I cash a check for based on who I think it's a check cash for. So she literally was letting me know, hey, I'm doing this because you're black. Now, if you change the narrative in your house, what happens is those tiny little microaggressions that we can't report, they start to be recognized by the person doing them like, oh shit, I am racist. And some of them will change, some of them will not. This is a war, man. Not everyone's gonna make it out. And a lot of people, when I posted, change the narrative in your home, a day later, I wrote on my wall, how hard is it for you guys already? And 300 people, were like not like the status and a hundred comments of i can't believe how difficult it is i can't believe how many friends i lost i can't believe how many people i've had to cut off i can't believe how many people i've unfriended and i'm sitting there like i can so and that was where that passion came from now i never want to discredit the pain of others but i wanted to address that the lgbt community because of the fact that it was june that I understand that your pride weekend and I understand that your pain and your suffering is real. Uh, I never deny that. But what I said was quite simply, we have never solved any of our issues. The LGBT community, you have your issues and that have never been solved. The black community, we have our issues that have never been solved. This black and white war, let's be honest, it's much longer and more deeply entrenched than any other problem going on. And that's why I said, you can't clean your house by trying to start in the kitchen and the and the bedroom, living room, the kitchen and the bathroom at the same time. You got to choose one room and start there. And this is the room we are in. And all I was saying basically is if we could come together and fix one thing, then we've created a community and a platform where we can fix everything. Because as we as uh, black and white people and people of all color come together and realize the stupidness of the microaggressions, the the prejudice, the racism, the holding down of another person just because their lifestyles are different from yours. Well, you can now take that platform and apply it to everybody. You know what I'm saying? You can easily take the black experience and if you can understand and learn from our pain, then you can then apply that uh, to the LGBT community. You can then take that and you can apply it to the First Nations community. Then you can take that and you can apply it. You can apply it anywhere once we work this together. And that's why I was like, listen, I don't want you guys trying to clean the bathroom and the kitchen at the same time. Let's clean this room first. And now that we know how to clean a room, 
Now let's do it all together. And because uh, I am, I believe that people can change. I say this because unfortunately, and I'm ashamed to say that, but say this, but I myself was raised and taught to be homophobic. And so I, when I look back on, like, for example, if anybody was to try to bring up me in high school, or, you know, like how they're digging up in old people's past, like how they did with Trudeau and shit. That's why I didn't get mad at Trudeau when he was in college with the blackface. I didn't care. Because if you pull up my past from when I'm 20 years old, you would see a lot of homophobic uh, things. I didn't learn until around 25 how terrible and, and wrong everything was. And I'd say about around 25 years of age, just before I started comedy, is when I realized how stupid it was to hate somebody that way. So for everybody who is watching this, who is now realizing that you were racist or are racist, it's okay. It's okay to change. It's okay to understand that you made a mistake. The system itself is fucked up. So therefore, we are fucked up. I'm part of the system. I'm fucked up. You're fucked up. All we're doing is coming together and understanding that this system is, is corrupt and it's wrong and that we need to make changes so that we could all be better in the future. How beautiful would it be to know that there's no more things being called a black neighborhood or a white neighborhood or the suburbs. We just call them neighborhoods. How good would it feel that there's no more the term of a black club, just a good club? You know what I'm saying? Right now, we distinguish those things. Is that a black bar? I can't go there. Is that a white bar? Oh, I'm not going in there. Security won't even let me in the white bars. You know what I'm saying? It's funny because white people are scared to get hurt in black clubs. Black people are scared that we're not even going to get into the white club. But how beautiful would it be if that all was gone and we just went to clubs? We just listened to music. It wasn't based on, like, a, it didn't have to be where, where if you're black, you can't sing a country song. Or if you're white, you can't, you can't enjoy R&B. It's terrible. And when people are like, oh, I hate cultural appropriation, you have to understand. I understand the pain of saying you don't like somebody taking a part of your culture and profiting from it without paying uh, respects back to where it came from. That I get. But we are all human beings and variety is the spice of life. I encourage you to travel the world and take from the world all the parts of it you like and instill it into your life. You know what I'm saying? I love the discipline of Japanese culture. I love the way Spanish people speak. I love, you know, uh, white people's organization skills because when they tell you 6.30, it's 6.30 that we're doing this podcast. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I love something from everyone. And I believe as a human being, you are entitled to be able to mold your life by the great things from everybody in this world. Now, I understand, like I said, profiting from it and all that kind of stuff. Yes, that's terrible, whatever. But I will never see a white person or an Asian person listening to soca music from Trinidad and Tobago and be like, that's cultural appropriation. I go, no, that's culture. That is the culture of human beings living and growing and evolving and becoming better. There's a lot of things in this world that are beautiful. This world is so fucking beautiful. And if you take your head out your ass for five minutes and look around, you'll realize how stupid it is to be like, I hate them because of this. Bad people don't come in colors. They are fucking bad. If you're bad, you're bad. And that's it. So don't be like, oh, I met a bad black person. And that's why I hate black people. 
cool. Then how come you sit there and say not all cops are bad? You get what I'm saying? Stop applying this this general blanket rule to make yourself feel safe because you dealt with one bad situation, okay? The world is bad. If you only lived around white, listen, there's murderers in Switzerland, okay? And they're all white up there. So I guarantee you they don't have uh, any, any, any excuses. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we need to lose that mindset. And I feel that what I was saying on stage was to try to give people something to go home and actually change. And I felt happy to see 200 people that message me and be like, I've been talking to my family and holy shit, it's difficult. I'm so sorry. I cannot believe that my dad, uncle, mom, this, that, the other. A friend of mine in Calgary was videotaping a white woman watching on the outside of the rally. And he was recording her without her knowledge because I love him and that's what he does. But he just wanted to record and show people exactly how old white people think. And the white lady looks at the rally and looks at him thinking he's her white ally. And she goes, ugh, I don't trust them. I think they're here to take over. And he goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, the blacks, they want to be in charge. And then he says, well, if they're not in charge, who is? And she's like, she looked at him and realized, ah, he's not part of my squad. And she walked off. But it's like, that's what I was really trying to convey with that speech was to give people a mission to accomplish. And I feel that change the narrative so that we can avoid the microaggressions and the hatred in our communities and change the laws so that none of us of any color should ever die innocently by the hands from someone that's supposed to protect us. Those are the two major things that I wanted to change. And that's really what I'm hoping from all this protest and all this rally. Like I wrote on my wall, I said, it should be illegal for police officers to kill unarmed people. And they were like, well, it technically is. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, illegal, illegal, as in that there's no reason for it. If you're an unarmed person, oh, well, we thought we saw, uh-uh. There's got to be some middle ground. I don't want to say, like, it should be at least that the person is brandishing and been commanded to put down the firearm or they've been shot at or so something where the police officer's life is in danger. Because to have a shotgun put at your head while you're laying on the floor with your handcuffs behind your back is, is excessive force. You know what I'm saying? And that's what you're doing to people in your city, in your community. You're there to, to assist and protect them. And you thought I was doing 10 kilometers over, so you feel the need to put a shotgun to my head. So now if they killed me, I would have just been another person. They said, well, he shouldn't have been speeding. Mm -hmm. You see, like, that's why it's like, that, that comes from the microaggressions. He shouldn't have been speeding because now they accept in their head, ah, he's a black dude. Yeah, black guys are always bad. And the fact that they can kill me, that's where the law is wrong. Yeah. Where, no, you shouldn't be allowed to murder a person who's innocent and unarmed. I mean, realistically, those are human beings. How did they get deemed the divine right to decide whether I live or die? Who gave them that power? Because it's not me. And I refuse to let that happen. That's why I was saying, I will not allow your hatred to make me another hashtag. I will not. I'm not going to be a martyr for no thing. I'm not going to be. I don't want you guys marching for me. If something happens to me, I can tell you right now, fire and brimstone. That's how that goes. That's all I want to see in here. And that's what I was feeling when I was on that stage. Fire and brimstone. Frustration and anger. The Ate the anger in my soul, pasted together with the hopeful in my heart. 
right off the bat, number one, uh, fuck you for doing such a good speech off the top of your head like that. I hate you a little <laughs> bit right now because it was super good. Number two, I think like there's a ton of stuff I'd love to add to this. We're get, getting kind of high on time and I want to do the after eight, but I think you, just you nailed so many issues with this. So I've had conversations with friends who I've never talked to again about this situation before this painful situation. In fact, one happened at my birthday party you were at. I get, and it's, this was the thing when I was talking to my daughter about this situation, right? Is we watched your rally. We got upset. I cried because of experiences, friends, you know, like people going through shit that just isn't fair. And I was saying like, and here's, here's one of the things that the privilege we have exists is guess what? Once we turn this rally off jazz, like we get to just go play D and D and not really, if we don't want to, we don't ever have to think about this shit again. And that right there is the privilege. Cause like you said on your, on your wall there is, you know, how many of you are already sick of this? This has been my whole life and you're already tired two days into the fight, right? Like yeah. that's, that's, it's, it's constantly weighing on you. And to jump back to the, like the police issue and the, with the first nations, especially, I, I used to have a very good friend used to, he died. I used to have a very good friend. His name was Jesse Lassard and he was a martial arts guy. And that's how I met lots of my friends was through martial arts. And Jesse was a straight badass. He was Danae. He was an amazing fighter. He was a great dude. We used to party and drink and do shit, whatever. Anyways, he, he died. And he died on a night that I went out with him. So I, we were drinking. I don't know if I've even told you this story or anybody no, in a long I don't time. Know. I don't know the story. So we were drinking. And I had just my, uh, I was married at the time. And my daughter was being created in her mom's tummy. And so she was like, look, you and Jesse, you guys get out there. You get crazy. I want you to come home early. So I went home early to preserve the marriage. Went to sleep, turned my phone off because Jesse was persistent. And I woke up to like 85 calls from Jesse. And like progressively, he was more and more panicked on his phone calls. So he left all the stuff in my car. I pulled it out. I started looking through it. I find like a listening device. Like it was weird. It was like a little microchip, whatever. So I called the police. I'm like, oh, well, this is crazy. Like he's gone missing. We don't know where he is. I couldn't get home for two days. So we filed a missing persons report. So they find his body. And uh, they, of course, since I'm the last person who saw him, I was the first suspect who of the person who killed him, right? So I went through the whole rigmarole of like being interviewed over and over again. Long story short is they deemed it a suicide because he was First Nations. Now, the guy, it's, it's bullshit. And this, this, this was my first slap in the face with this. This was probably about 15 years, or no, I guess my daughter's 11, so about 11 years ago. Number one, they, they didn't try that hard. Like, honestly, they just didn't. And I don't know if it's every police officer, but every the officers that we work with, they didn't try that hard. Number two, he exhibited 0% of the signs of somebody going for suicide. He was working on a job promotion. He had reconnected with his family. He was doing all of the things you don't do, right? He just got a new place. Normally, you give away money. You disconnect. And because he was found with a rope around his neck, they believe he killed himself in the fucking woods. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? This guy is a badass martial artist. He didn't go into the woods and kill himself. I was drinking with him that night. And he was telling me how his life was going so well. And so there is a problem here, straight up. And this is the point of this podcast, everybody. You have to listen to this, right? Is there's, I could interview, I could run out of, I could for the rest of my life interview people telling me one horrible story for people of color that have interacted with police officers and fill all the content for the rest of my goddamn life. This is, it's prevalent and it's there. So Sterling, we're going to kind of end on that really sobering note. It was awful. Um, now I know it's weird, but let's promote your comedy tour. So things are, <laughs> so things are starting to speak, uh, perk back up. If you think, and again, I'm going to link below the presentation 
that Sterling did off the goddamn top of his head. And because uh, I'm super bitter about facts, it was so good. Um, <laughs> for the, that he did off the top of his head. If you think that's good, wait till he plans something and makes it funny. So <laughs> Sterling, why, <laughs> Sterling, why don't you tell the people where they can find you coming up? Because the world's opening back up over here. Um, so my first time back on stage in an actual club will be June 25th to the 30th inside the comic strip at West Edmonton Mall. And I am headlining the entire week. This is also the very first time I've ever headlined the comic strip for its entire week. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. And get your tickets at thecomicstrip.ca. And uh, make sure you guys uh, come down. Let's sell out the show. It's only 25% capacity. So it's definitely capable for me to sell it out. So let's sell them out. And uh, I just want, I, I, I'm scared and nervous. I'll be absolutely honest with you guys. I have never in... Uh, It'll be 13 years come September. I've been doing stand-up comedy. The longest I've ever been off stage was three days and outside of this pandemic. So this pandemic was the first time I've ever sat down for, what, 74, 75 days. I'm scared. I am nervous. But at the same time, I'm excited. I feel exactly the same way you felt the first time you had sex. Like you were nervous about it, but you wanted it. You know what I mean? And let's just hope, unlike the first time I had sex, I don't finish in three minutes. So we can all, let's do the 45 that I said I can do. And <laughs> Sterling, you also, do. you also have a podcast, right? Yes, during the pandemic, me and a million other comedians. But I love doing the podcast. I, I always love being interviewed, uh, especially by you, Randy. Oh, uh, I always loved talking, as you guys could see how, many, how long I've held the microphone every time. Get the chance to talk. I eat up about 10 minutes. Uh, and I love that now I have a outlet to just listen to. Come like like if you if you if you like hanging out with me and you like talking to me, then you would like my podcast because that's exactly what it's like. It's it's a conversation, sometimes with myself, sometimes with other people. It's definitely gonna be with Randy in the near future. And uh it's just it's just a nice vibe. It's a, some of it's funny, some of it's serious, all of it is entertaining. It's called the Comedy Reject. You can find it on TaylorMadeRadio.ca and all major streaming platforms. So please check that out. I would love to have some new listeners, and I see exactly how many listeners I get. So I would love to see more than the regulars come back. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I highly recommend checking out uh, Stoney's podcast. I just listened to episode seven. And of course, it has to do with uh, all the things that are going on. Check it out. It's a great show. It's very stream of consciousness, but you're so good on the fly that it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, all right, Sterling, we're going to get to the after eight portion of this. Everybody, this is an important conversation. Please, please, please don't stop doing this fight just because it leaves the news cycle. Pay attention check your people at home, have conversations with your children. This is an important thing because you might think that you are doing a great job, but the kids catch on to the stuff you're not paying attention to as well, right? So mm -hmm. please, like Sterling said, if you wanna be actionable with this, remember that your creepy uncle that makes you uncomfortable at Thanksgiving makes everybody uncomfortable all the goddamn time when he's at work. So call the people on this shit, like Jesse Lipscone said, right? Make it awkward, do what you gotta do. You don't need to like just, if everybody does a portion of the work, we can get this work done, I hope. Yes. Awesome. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Jump over to Patreon, $5 level for eight questions with Sterling that are not nearly as goddamn heavy. But uh, again, these, these conversations are important and we have to have them. So we'll talk to you all soon.